Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We are everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and me, I'm Jer Swigart. And as always, we're gonna ease our way into this conversation with one of Haley's questions of the week. It's time for the question of the week. Da, 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 ba, 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 ba. <laughs> this is Haley Mitsui. I'm joined as always by the co-founding directors of Global Immersion, J.R. Swigart and John Huckins. Um, okay, guys, our question for this week is favorite form, or I will pose it as a question. What is your favorite form of exercise and what does it do for you? Jer, I feel like you're I, bursting at the seams to I share. I love the question. <laughs> I love the question. I am a, I'm a runner and... I live in the mountains, and so running in the mountains, especially on single track, uh, which are just those very narrow little dirt paths that take you for miles and miles um, up to the tops of mountains and down into river valleys, that is my favorite, favorite form of exercise. Um, I don't listen to anything when I'm running uh, because running for me is both a physical uh, physical practice, but it's deeply spiritual for me. I just feel like I connect with the Creator, I connect with myself. I also think it's a it's mentally, uh, emotionally healthy for me because I feel like as I run, I also I kind of detangle a bit, and um, and so therefore I do some of my best thinking when I'm running. The hard thing is that I don't bring anything to capture my thoughts. And so <laughs> I, uh, I'll finish a run and I'll have to sprint up to my bedroom or um, to my desk and r- scribble down a bunch of thoughts because uh, of what kind of surfaces in that time. But yeah, so running and it does a bunch for me. What about you, John? Oh, um, rowing machine. You the know, machine, not like the actual <laughs> boat, just the machine. Yeah. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Oh. I, I, don't, I can't think of a time I've done the rowing machine. <laughs> Your guys' faces were worth, never... worth, worth, huh? Um, not that I'm anti-rowing machine. Don't hear that, please. Um, I mean, water in general is my preferred form of exercise, but surfing is at the top of that form of water exploration. Uh, probably similar elements, Jared, to how you describe running on those trails. It's it's like I'm, I don't have, I'm detached from everything. Not only am I detached from like devices, I'm detached from land. So I kind of lose the ability to control my environment. And that's a helpful thing for me just to be... Uh, absorbed in creation and I find a lot of I feel healthier physically and mentally every time I surf something reboots in me so it does a lot Hales what do you got I wouldn't say I'm a gym rat gym head beefcake so I don't (laughs) I don't think anyone who's met me has ever thought otherwise so I I recently picked running back up. I was a cross-country runner in high school, but these last two years I've been running more. And that is 
also a favorite form of exercise for me. Similar reasons, very clarifying. There's actually something about that bilateral stimulation of the body when you're running with both I don't know, maybe surfing too with like moving both of your arms, but it actually unlocks like parts of your brain, allows them to connect more fully when you are moving bilaterally like that. So it is very clearing and cleansing time. But my second, like very close second slash maybe first really is dancing. Dancing is, Mm. I lose myself in dancing. My husband can attest to uh, my endless energy and, and love for dancing. Um, and But as, as I was sitting here, I'm like, I haven't danced in a really long time. I think that might be part of my problem. So thanks for this reminder question of the week. Yeah, That's hey, really good. Uh, see that, that can is a gift that keeps on giving. Hey, let, let me just yeah, ask a follow-up to you, Hales. Uh, now, when okay. you say dancing, are we talking like... You know, are we talking jazzercise? Are we talking ballet, <laughs> jazz, hip hop? Or are we talking like mm, mm. the hip, the hippie out in like the, the previously harvested hay field under the stars kind of interpretive movement? Good question. My most enjoyable like exercise classes are, I mean, I wouldn't call them jazzercise, but I would say that I was a card carrying member of the YMCA in San Diego for many years. And my favorite exercise class was you jam with Sam. And I would go there on Wednesdays and I would just jam my little heart out with this tiny little Filipino man named Sam. (laughs) And it was the best. With that being said, we're going to transition to uh, today's guest, which I'm thrilled for you all to meet. His name is Chris Nafis. He's a neighbor. He's a pastor. He's a theologian uh, who's living out his theology in some of the most subversive and practical ways um, you can imagine. And it's, it's leading towards an embodied theology that looks like restoration. So let's listen in. I am thrilled to acknowledge and to thank one of our core sponsors of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. It's an organization called Respero. They're committed to making safe, life-giving conversations available and accessible to everyone. In short, they offer free counseling and support in those that want to get trained in counseling. And I know for me, this has felt like a uniquely rough year, but if we're honest, uh, every year has ups and downs if we're seeking to fully live towards wholeness. And for me personally, one of the central lifelines I've had is to be in regular counseling, tending to my heart, my head, my soul, aligning values with actions, creating space just to get stuff out that can often fester inside and tear me apart. So it's been through Respero and their counselors that I've had access to this type of deep care and accompaniment. So if you're personally in need of a counselor, wanting to grow, uh, or just get trained in being a counselor, check out Respero.org, where, again, they offer personal counseling at no cost. They offer online courses and workshops, and they have counselor training if you feel compelled to actually grow in this way yourself. In the end, Respero's goal is to have more and more healthy and healing conversations happening in our world. So check them out, Respero.org. Okay, everybody, thrilled to uh, introduce you to a friend named Chris Nafis, who is a neighbor, uh, pastors a church just down the street from my house here in East Village, San Diego, also teaches at Point Loma University and is a, a chaplain. Uh, in a hospital. And uh, he's someone who, at the intersection of theology, lives a very practiced way of life, especially among some of our city's most vulnerable. So it's a gift to have you with us. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Anything else you'd say to introduce yourself and how you spend your 
life? Uh, no, I mean, I'm a multivocational pastor, three small kids, six, four, and two. And so uh, just like a very full life right now. Life is full of good things, but it's very full. And our, <laughs> our church, it's at the heart of homelessness in San Diego. So uh, we planted uh, this church about four and a half years ago. It's called Living Water Church of the Nazarene out of uh, some homeless outreach ministries, primarily some food ministries. So for like 20 years or so, people from various churches, uh, churches of the Nazarene, had been doing uh, a lot of food ministries in East Village. Uh, there was one on Tuesday nights. We were feeding like 100, 125 people every week uh, through a couple different churches. And then Point Loma Nazarene University has been sending students down there. So it, that work had preceded me, but I had been in that work for five or six years and uh, out of that, we eventually planted Living Water Church of the Nazarene. And uh, so we've been at it for like four and a half years now. And uh, a big chunk of our church is people who are experiencing homelessness. And another large chunk of our church are people who have experienced homelessness in their past. And then, you know, another chunk or so, you know, maybe splits into thirds really roughly are people who feel uh, called to be in community with people who have had tough life who've lived on the margins and um and so we've got a, a mixed community but that's kind of where our work takes place yeah it's beautiful kids six four and two is full in and of itself and <laughs> you toss on a few <laughs> vocational commitments but one thing it's uh, that's always inspired me about you and our conversations is the the way that, and even in our city, in every city, you have food ministries, you have churches that kind of have an external outreach, quote unquote, that that serves food to to vulnerable folks, folks living on our streets. But your community, Living Water Church, was birthed out of that, and it's not just in, in service to those on the streets, but that is your community in many ways. Like I, I have, I have heard you talk about the, these these folks that live on our streets actually not only coming to receive food from your church, but actually participating in it. Like you see them as an integral part of your community. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that has come about, maybe some of the bumps uh, along the way, and then um, and then we'll fast forward from there. Yeah, so that's been very intentional. Uh, we planted the church specifically to be a community of people, like to be a church of people who are in East Village and who are in sort of these different life circumstances. So there's lots of people doing work in East Village and in lots of other places that that are, you know, charity works and, and giving out food and doing housing. We were doing that work. I mean, we still are doing that work. It's a lot of good work being done for people who are caring for those in need. And the vision for our church really was beyond that. It was to become a church of those people on the margins. Uh, and so right from the start, I mean, even as we, uh, we, we, you know, put together a church plant team and everything, on our church plant team, we had folks who were experiencing homelessness already. We had people who had that in their backgrounds, people who lived in East Village in different capacities. Uh, and so right from the start, we had that representation in our, in not only in our church, but in our church leadership. That's really continued all the way through. We've always had someone on our church board who is on the streets or just off the streets. And I mean, such a huge chunk of our congregation is like in, in that space, in, the, in those experiences in life that, um, I mean, that just really is our church, you know. So I, it's less that we're like a church that serves the poor. We just, we're just, we are the poor. And so, uh, and that, that seems like maybe a small difference, but it actually is like a, a pretty big difference. And so, yeah, like the first bit, we, we intentionally didn't 
really offer any services. We did food after church on Sundays, like just dinner together, but definitely didn't have enough to feed the neighborhood. It was really, you know, uh, for people who, it was a, for us, it was a continuation of communion and it was meant for people who are worshiping with us and, uh, and just people respected that. And, uh, you know, so people come to us all the time looking for things and stuff. And these days we're able to offer a little bit more. We do a lot of food ministries now and we've got some clothing going on and, uh, we've got a cell phone charging station that we do in conjunction with a, a partner organization. Um, but really, that's not really what we are, we're offering. That's not really our thing. Like Our thing is to be a loving community uh, of disciples who are trying to get through this life together and, and be faithful to Christ together. My older two girls, who are 10 and 7, uh, our, our favorite bike route goes right by your church. We go through East Village and then downtown, the ballpark and different things. And um, Something that's that's so uh, significant, though, is every time we pass the door to your church and see it, and I almost always say, hey, remember what that church is. And the first time I, we drove by, you know, I said, my friend Chris is the pastor there, and this is the this is not only the work they do, but this is who they are. And it, and it, it made me think about what that meant to my kids and what it means to others of us in our city, that, that your church is a sign of what I would describe as a piece of, of shalom, of things being rightly ordered. And we often talk about that theologically as, as sacramental, like it's a sign to the world of God's dream. And it's messy and it's incomplete, of course we know that, but there's something sacramental about your community as you live this stuff out. And so I want to talk about, you know, you, you're also a theologian and you teach theology at Point Loma. But then you're practicing that theology that, that looks like sacrament on the streets of East Village. Um, and then now in the last year, we have a global pandemic where you guys have had to live this, this theology practically in some of the most tangible ways ever. I know you've had to expand your capacity to care for those that are most impacted by the pandemic and those that are extremely vulnerable on our streets. Would you talk some about this, how you integrate this academic theology into the practice way of life and then even how this has expanded throughout the this last year. Uh, yeah, sure. It, it's been really cool to see. So, you know, in my like theological education, just in the circles I ran in, the schools I went to, the people who are influencing my life, developed a very embodied theology uh, where, you know, it really has flesh and bones. And it's a theology that's meant to be lived. And the things that we see aren't, they're not just concepts that are abstract. They are like life together and, and bodies and people kind of clashing into each other and needing needing food or getting angry or whatever. And so um, really feel like as we've planted this church and, we, you know, we didn't know what we we're doing. Like at most church planters, we just kind of jumped in and, and are, you know, taking it as it goes. It's been a lot of uh, ups and downs, a lot of flexibility, a lot of changing things all the time. Um, but we're really seeing like some of the concepts like just played out in ways that are so plain and easy to see that it's kind of like amazing, like we, you know, in, in both good and bad ways. So like you talk about, you know, powers and principalities and sort of the sin and death and the roles that those play in, in sort of humanity and life. And I think, you know, that growing up at church, hearing those concepts, it was very abstract. It was often uh, very personalized. It was about my own uh, guilt or innocence and my own sort of trying to be, trying to avoid sin and do good or something like that. Um, but then you get in and see uh, how like a neighborhood like East Village functions. You see the powers that 
push people around and you see the powerless people being sort of shuffled back and forth. You see the ways that, um, like all these dark powers, it's hard to just like name them and say, this is, you know, sin and this is the person who's guilty for it and stuff like that. It's much more amorphous, but there definitely is like this power of, uh, you know, like darkness that just pulls people apart from one another, that isolates people, that pushes down uh, people who are easy to push down and lifts up people who um, are already on top. And so you can just kind of see that happening. Uh, and it, you know, it happens in like a, a lot of ways from how properties, you know, get handled. And, you know, that was one of our struggles early on was finding a, just a place to meet and being pushed out of places and having people when we did have a place, uh, you know, when we get a little publicity and people know that there are unsheltered folks around and they call your landlord and try to get you evicted. And you, know, you see things like, like just this very blatant um, exercise of power. Uh, we see that with some of the partner organizations that we work with of them also being pushed around by those who have money and wealth and things. And you see it on like a smaller, I don't know if it's a smaller scale, but you can see the way that like the brokenness of the world just drives people to isolation and, and death, pulls people away from one another. Uh, you know, all of the issues that lead people into homelessness, there are lots of them. Um, they're all very isolating, you know, like, a, you know, you think about addiction and how that just pushes everyone away and, um, you know, uh, breaks relationships, breaks bonds, kind of turns people in towards only themselves. And you just sort of get lost in this thing. You can't trust anybody. Nobody trusts you. And you kind of are on your own. Mental health issues do the same thing in a lot of ways where um, this this particular kind of brokenness really uh, builds barriers between others and breaks trust and leads people into isolation, uh, domestic violence, you know, uh, same thing. Uh, you know, just poverty in general, having uh, a lack of funds and, you know, I mean, there's so many issues, all of them seemingly intractable that lead people to be on the streets. And it just becomes clear as you like walk with people in, the, in life and see how they struggle through all this stuff that, um, yeah, just like the, the brokenness and darkness of the world pulls us apart from one another. And so our work really has been to invite people back into communion with one another, uh, to live life together, to find each other. And um, it's been such a, like, it, it's hard to like talk about it because it doesn't, it, it doesn't sound like much, but to see people reconnect with others and learn to trust each other and learn to like walk in life together to like leave their defenses at the door because they know that they're in a, a community that loves each other. Um, you know, people on the street are usually unwelcome, like in most of the places that they go, uh, they're quickly identified as being homeless and often escorted out or watched or whatever. And, uh, you know, people come to our gatherings and, are known by name. We're happy, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are happy to see them, um, that call them brother and sister. You know, there's just like a different, uh, atmosphere and a different connection that, um, just pulls people out of this like isolation and, and in doing so pulls them out of this experience of being, uh, I mean, like call it like being enslaved to sin or being sort of in in bondage to sin. So that like these things that we you may talk about in the theology class or in biblical studies class that seem abstract and conceptual when you like get into the nitty gritty of life together, especially with people who are kind of at the bottom of uh, society's hierarchies. 
you can see them playing out really vividly um, just in, in life, which is it's really cool to see. It is. It just even, you know, the, the way you're talking about that is you're creating space for people to find their way back to each other. We define peace as a holistic repair of relationship. That's not just with our other, but with ourselves and ultimately with God. You know, it's, it's you're creating space for people to find their way back to how God sees them, how they can see themselves into communities where they're usually taught to be defensive or like they're not enough or they're outsider or they are have they do have to move towards isolation and cope with it through all these different means uh the, at the center of that is this community that's just saying hey remember who you are and this is a space for for that to to be lived out you, i love the way you talked about theology is life like it's it's embodied and so if you were to say to to those of us who are wrestling through how to make sense of like th- there's so much pay- like the principalities and powers that you talk about even we read about in scripture and you're saying you see it systemically happening and the way uh land ownership happens and landlords and different things uh, as we navigate a moment where I think our theology can oftentimes be used to oppress, I'm hearing you talk about theology in ways that lead to liberation. What's your word to us as everyday peacemakers uh, of how we understand our theology leading us back to each other, back to this liberation rather than to uh, to separation? Oh man, that's a really good and big question. It, it, you know, everybody's in different places with this, but I think one of the biggest things that, um, the, one of the biggest ways that I've developed sort of theologically as I've, you know, gotten into my pastoral ministry over the last 10 years is to begin to understand the, uh, the collective realities of our theology and not, uh, and to get away from like a, a hyper individualized and, and very personal understanding of like God and and our relationship with God and how everything works. And I don't know, maybe people are already there and this is all like old news or something, but I think so much of uh, the theology of the church in in the West has been uh, individualized and it's been a part of this individualizing force where like in, in my congregants, it's very easy to see the ways that the world has shaped them to be out for themselves uh, almost as a necessity, you know, because people, you you know, when you're on the street, like you just can't trust anybody. Like, you let your bag get six inches away from you and someone's going to steal it. And it's just very up, up front and in your face. But I think in general, in our culture, that those same forces are at work just in different ways where we are like shaped and formed to be um, concerned with our own well-being. And I think that's, that's true in, in sort of a physical, tangible way, but also in a spiritual and emotional way, uh, where we are kind of on our own. And then we begin to, to understand and hear theology through that lens of like, well, what does this mean for me? And I think getting beyond that and starting to see how um, the gospel speaks not just to me as like a, a single person, but to uh, us as a church, as a people, as a society, as a world, um, I think that that change for me has been one of the biggest ones that I think I, I still feel like week in and week out I'm realizing new ways that I've been blind to the collective nature of um, of this truth and finding my way into it in a deeper way. So I don't know if that's that's the kind of word that uh, you know speaks to the crowd and the listeners of this podcast. Maybe it's old news, but that's that's maybe where I'd start. It's such a good word, and maybe some folks have heard something similar, but the way that you're living it out as a tangible expression of that is what's so uncommon and such a gift. And so thanks for being someone who offers a theology of restoration that's beyond personal salvation, includes personal and also uh, a communal, uh, and then is living that out every single day in ways that 
that we can see it and is sacramental. So good to have you with us, Chris. Thanks, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, great. Always good to talk to you, John, and uh, appreciate the, the time and the conversation. Yeah, the, uh, Chris's voice was um, was so unique to the Everyday Peacemaking podcast. Obviously, as a um, as as a theologian, and not not only a theologian in the halls of the academy, but he's a he's a theologian in the streets. And uh, I loved his mention of embodied theology. You know, like that from a from a from an everyday peacemaker perspective that's what we've been saying for the last decade right this isn't just something that we do this is something that we are right so um, we don't believe or think a theology we live that theology and the theology that we think becomes true as it's uh, uh, as as it is manifests in our life and our actions and our love and our leadership and so I love that concept of embodied theology that's what we're trying to do here with the everyday peacemaking community help us actually sink a restorative theology from our heads into um, into our bones and um, and it sounds like Chris is doing that in some really remarkable ways one of the things that I wanted to uh, I just wanted to reflect on a little bit is uh, is his emphasis on inviting people back into communion. And I think that was like his exact quote. And, uh, you know, and this is, this is the beauty, I think, as well, of the everyday peacemaking movement is, is that like we're all reflecting on this a little bit differently and we're all practicing a little bit differently. Of course, we, uh, with Global Immersion, the, the practices of see, immerse, contend, restore, we're constantly raising those up Um uh, and, and as um, as the, the concept of peace and peacemaking as well. But when he talked about welcoming people back into communion, that's another way of saying peacemaking, right? Like people who are outside of communion, welcoming them back into communion, reconnecting them, inviting them into an experience of trust where uh, where we walk together. Um, uh, y- yes, he's doing that with um, within the homeless community, but but for, that's language for all of us as everyday peacemakers. Who are those in our everydays that exist outside of our empathy or exist outside of community? And what does it mean to be proactive in inviting them into communion uh, with us, and so that that caught my attention, and um, I, I, it makes me wonder: in in this year, do we have eyes to see those who exist outside of communion? And maybe even taking it a step further, do we have eyes to see the ways in which a preference for isolation and individualism and independence has actually placed us outside of communion? Uh, and so even instead of looking for those who are outside communion, perhaps this is an invitation uh, to, um, to wonder a little bit uh, around how our commitments to individualism have placed us um, outside of, of, uh, of communion and what it would take for us to move back into community and this understanding of interdependence. Jerry, I think it was a similar thing that struck me, I think at a different point in the conversation, but very similar. He kind of chuckled to himself and he was like, what did he say? You know, he's like, we don't really have programs. You know, we we just are a church where people come and people know their name. And he's like, it's a small thing, but it's just a place for connection. And I'm like, that's like the hugest thing. That is literally the, <laughs> the thing. Um, and... And so when he said, I think I wrote it down, he said something along the lines of who is who is reminding us who we are. There are people here that know, you know, everyone's names and are reminding them who they are 
in this world that is taking advantage of you or you're not safe or you have to be this, you know, hyper vigilant version of yourself because of your lack of safety. His church is a place or their church is a place where you can be reminded who you are. And so it just made me write down that question of who reminds me who I am. That is something I want to be so much more aware of and so much more intentional of noticing. Some of the connections you just made hails to, we just are a church. Like we, we, we just, we, na- we, we tell we know each other's names. Like you aren't just a project that sits on the outside uh, and comes in for to receive a service. We, we are in this thing together, which makes me think so much of the way he's embodying. Um, when we talk about immersion, we talk about actually being present in and among and accompanying community. We're talking about not handouts, as we often say, and our friend, our colleague Samuel would say, it's not about charity. It's not just about handing stuff out. It's about solidarity. It's about a ministry of presence, of being with, of accompaniment, of linking arms, and saying in that space we will we will move towards healing together. And I'm just so struck with how that how practical that's become for their church because so many churches, with the best intentions, again have these great outreach programs or food ministries or pantries, but it still has a proximity gap that is really far from the church community and those that are served by the community who happen to be those people living outside. And so that intentional decision, as he said, right from the beginning of the inception of their church was it wouldn't be a church for those out on the outside. It would be a church of those in East Village. And that, you know, I've heard him tell stories over coffee, too, of, of how difficult that can be, you know, when you have neighbors who are are struggling with mental illness because of addictions, and that happens in the middle of your service. You know, practically, what is the cost to be an everyday peacemaker who's a church of rather than a church for? And that pivot has uh, all the implications for the way that we live out this restorative theology he talked about. And the cost to get there is slower, but it's it's sacramental. It's it's sacred. It's a sign of what could be. And that just um, is, is incredibly inspiring to me. You and I have, have both been faith leaders in different contexts. And I, I'm just wondering, when you hear that, right? Like, because I think that I, it's a subtle grammatical twist, like the difference between for versus of. A ch- rather than being a church for, it's a church of. I mean, that is very, very subtle. But the implications of that are so, so big. Do you think it's possible for faith communities who understand themselves as or have been designed as churches for, can they take a journey to become a church of? And if so, what kind of restorative leadership do you think is necessary? Mm. Great question. And Hales, feel free to jump in on that too. But I, I do think it's, I mean, it's, when we talk about incarnation, Jesus on earth as God, that wasn't just for, that was of. Jesus became of the people who were broken. <laughs> it's a completely different shift. I think for churches that have structured themselves to be more about a church for, which immediately puts us in the posture of hero, of dispensers of goods, it would require not only a DNA, a DNA shift, it would take a, a structural renovation. Uh, I think it's possible. And I, and I know we've seen and participated with churches that have, uh, but, but often it's from the ground up, like Chris is describing, um, to cast a vision from a leadership table to be a church of rather than for would require probably taking a church down to its screws and starting 
uh, starting over. Well, it would require pretty much everyone in power relinquishing their power. You can't be a church of and not for if everyone on your board are people that haves and everyone that's a part of your church or the people you're saying comprises your church are different, aren't reflected in that leadership, you know? So I'm like sitting over here a little pessimistically thinking, I don't know a lot of people that poured their heart and soul into something that then are willing to give it to someone. So for example, like in this church, like are you going to have a board of elders of people who are, that don't always act in their own best interest, but then you're entrusting them with this thing? It's like, it gets complicated yeah. and yeah. messy totally. really, really fast. So I hope, I mean, I would, I hope that it can be done because otherwise we don't move away from paternalistic faith communities. But man, that that's a hard transition. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think as well, if um, for, for our listenership, for those of you who are faith leaders, I think this is a great question to ask. Um, is, is my church, is our church a church for or a church of? Uh, and for those uh, for those of us who don't understand ourselves as faith leaders or, or pastors, is your expectation that your church is a church for or a church of? And um, and because again, the essence of of Chris as a theologian, I think he would say um, the shift from for to of in this regard says something about what you believe about God. Um, about it is. Like God is both for, yes, and of, but like to your point, John, this idea of incarnation, of proximity, of immersion, our God is a God of, of, <laughs> um, and, uh, and that shapes, that shapes the way that we, I think, navigate, um, relationships and faith and all these things. And so, I don't know, interesting, re- really interesting concept. So Chris Nafis, such a gift to have you on the podcast this week, uh, reminding us not only in word, but an example that the church uh, is not only to be for our neighbors, but of our neighbors, uh, that it is proximate, it is close in the way that we see God move close to us in Jesus and embody a theology that invites us back to each other, which ultimately is the picture of peace. Uh, that's the journey we're all on. It's, it's something you embody as a church and that we can live into together. So friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go and participate in it and know that you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.